0: 1 Peter chapter 1, we're going to start in verse 13. 1 Peter chapter 1, starting in verse 13. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as he who called you is holy Like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for your sake, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and hope are in God. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart, since you've been born again. Not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding Word of God. For all flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers, and the flower falls, but the Word of the Lord remains forever. And this Word is the good news that was preached to you. Let's pray. Lord, we ask um, that you would help us as we go through your Word this morning. That you would help us to understand it and to love it. Father, that you would conform us to the image of your son. That you would transform us from our former ungodly way of life. From our former ignorance and passions. From our former conduct. That we would recognize that we are your children and as such have been called to be holy as you are holy. Father, that you would help us understand what it means to be exiles, what it means to be those who are in this fallen world, to suffer in this present time, and how it is that your gospel empowers us to live holy lives even in this period of suffering. And Father, that we would do so as we look forward to, as we await the day ...of the glorious return of your Son, Jesus Christ. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, last week I said in the sermon that we are elect exiles. Picking that up from 1 Peter and in the first first few verses. We are those who belong to the kingdom of God. And this is not our home. We're just sojourners. We're exiles. We're resident aliens... In a sense, we are people who are passing through. And as such, we now live in this time of suffering. You see, when the Lord saved us, he did not remove us instantly from this suffering world. He left us in this fallen world where we continue to suffer. We suffer as exiles as we await our Savior and Lord Jesus Christ, our hope and our joy. So what gives us the power to live holy lives during this time of exile? What gives us the ability to carry on in holiness while we live in this time of suffering? When my government persecutes me, which thank God our government is not yet there, but when my government persecutes me, as was happening with the people here that Peter's writing to, when others mock me for my faith, when my husband or a wife is disobedient to God and unkind to me, when I am suffering from various kinds of trials, when I'm sick, when I'm financially destitute, when I'm depressed, when I'm unsuccessful, when I'm rejected, when I am misunderstood, when I am mistreated, when I am laughed at for standing against the popular culture and standing for godliness, what gives me the power in the midst of those situations To live a holy life. See, that's the situations that Peter's recipients, the letter, the recipients of this letter. That's the situation they were in. What does Peter expect? Would give us the power to live a holy life in the midst of that kind of suffering. And there is one word Peter says, one word that gives us this power, and that word is the word that justifies us, i.e brings forgiveness and cleansing for our sin, and declares us righteous. And that word is the word that empowers us to grow progressively in godliness and holiness. That word is the gospel. The gospel is the power of God to forgive you and declare you righteous, and the gospel is the power of God to enable you or empower you to live a holy life. On Thursday night, a, a group of us went down to a conference in Southern California, and it was, a, it was a world missions conference. We were discussing missions. People from all sorts of different perspectives were there, and during the conference, um, one of the speakers got up, one of the pastors, and he said, you know, I was interviewing a guy named Mike Horton today, Dr. Michael Horton. He's, he's known for his ministry with the White Horse Inn as a radio broadcast as well as some of his writing, et cetera, and he said, I was I was interviewing him today, and while I was interviewing him, he said something that, that I thought was really true. He said that we need to preach the gospel to the church. And he said, and I thought to myself, that's right because there are lost people in the church too. And I kind of winced and thought to myself, oh, yes, there are lost people in the church too, but that's not exactly his point. You've kind of missed his whole point. His point is, that the gospel is more than just for unbelievers. The gospel isn't just the door that gets you into the church. The gospel is for believers also. I, I want you to hear this and I want you to cement it in your minds and your hearts. You will never, you will never mature beyond the gospel. Never. The gospel is not the milk and everything else the meat. The gospel is both the milk and the meat of the Christian life. We never, as J.I. Packer said, we never move on from the gospel. We move on in the gospel. This is the understanding of sanctification or growth and holiness that Peter had. This is the understanding of growth and holiness that Peter knew would help the exiles live holy lives, would help Christians live in this fallen world. So as I preach through Peter's call to holiness here in verses 13 to 25, as I preach through his call to holiness, I want you to notice that every time Peter gives us a major command with regard to holiness, he always directs us back to the gospel and grounds it in the gospel. This morning, I actually want to address three major commands Peter gives us in this section. Three major commands he gives us for living holy lives as exiles in this world. And as I do, I want you to see the gospel context for every single one of these commands. So here's the first one. The gospel empowers us to hope fully in our God while we live in exile. The gospel empowers us, enables us, strengthens us to hope fully in our God while we live in suffering or in exile. Look at verse 13. Therefore... Preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Now, when you're reading verse 13, you might think there are three commands. Preparing your minds for action, being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace of God. There's three commands. Actually, there's one main verb, set your hope fully on the grace of God, and two participles. Preparing your mind for actions, for action, and setting uh, excuse me, and um, being sober-minded. those are the two participles. Those two participles modify the main verb. They tell you how to do the main verb. What's the main verb? The main verb is, set your hope fully on the grace of God. Girding up the loins of your mind is another way to interpret that. preparing your minds for action. I'll talk about that in a minute. But they are commands that are subordinate to the main command. The main command, the main verb is set your hope fully on the grace of God. Listen, listen to the first command Peter really gives us. He explains the advantages that we have as Christians because of the gospel in the first 12 verses. How incredible, glor- incredibly glorious the salvation is that we have in Christ. He explains that. But then in verse 13, the first command he gives us is a command to set our hope fully on the grace of God. That's the command. It's not an ethical command. He doesn't give us first the command to serve the poor. He doesn't give us first the command to avoid lying and gossip or to abstain from sexual immorality. He doesn't give us the command to transform the culture or to establish just government or to forgive others. No, his first command is a command to set your hope fully on the grace that is to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Baptist preacher and scholar John Piper said this about that. In other words, God's command is not first what you can perform for him with your strength. His command is first that you hope in what he can perform for you with his strength. Why? Because Christianity is the story of God seeking and saving the lost. It's a story of God's sovereign and loving initiative in pursuing us who forsook him and in giving us his son sacrificially and in his sending his spirit to breathe life into us so that we're born again and trust in him alone. And in him hearing the constant prayers of his son on our behalf that he would keep us. And in him giving us a written word through which we come to know him. And in him establishing a church to gather us together and to encourage one another in our growth and holiness. And in him giving us pastors and teachers to equip us to help one another grow in holiness. And in him giving us spiritual gifts to help one another grow in holiness. And in him promising to send his son again to finally and fully perfect us in holiness. The gospel's a story about what God does for us, not about what we do for him. What we do for him is exactly the bad news, not the good news. The good news is is that in spite of our sin, in spite of our rejection of him, in spite of the way that we've turned from him and to wickedness, he does something glorious for us. And what Peter says is your first command is hope fully in that. We didn't establish any of it. Christianity is not first something we do. It's first something we hope in. If you want proof or you think i'm exaggerating look at the first word of verse 13 therefore and i told you guys this before whenever you see the word therefore you ask the question what is the therefore therefore why does he use that connector what's the connection he's making he's making connection back to the last 12 verses in which he has declared what a great gospel we have He speaks of how God is to be blessed. Look at verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. He speaks of how God is to be blessed because of all God has done for us. And then he says, therefore, set your hope fully. And what's our response? We are to rejoice, to believe, to hope. Grace is coming, is what Peter says. Not only have you received grace now, but grace upon grace is coming. Set your hope there. Not partially. Set your hope fully on it. Let grace get all the glory. Not your works, but God's grace in Christ. Show the world that God's grace is is sufficient. Show them it's enough. Hope fully in the grace of God. Well, how do we do it? He gives two subordinate commands. Here they are. Prepare your mind for action and being sober-minded. That's how we do this. How do we set our hope fully on the grace of God? We prepare our minds for action and we be sober-minded. What does it mean to prepare our minds for action? Well, actually, the exact Greek translation of that is gird up the loins of your mind what 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 is he talking about here whenever a man would run in the first century whenever he would run they always wore these long robes right these robes they, these men wore and they wore a belt around the robe they did not wear undergarments right and the robes weren't long enough that when they went running and the robe came flying up we've got a problem right and so what men would do to run in the first century is they would actually gird up their loins. Which means They'd take the robe and they would wrap it and tuck it into their belt. That way, their loins were girded up so they could run. And what he's saying here is that we're, gonna, we're, in, a Christ, we're in a race of the Christian life. We're in a race. And if you're going to run, you've got to gird up the loins of your mind. What exactly does that look like? Well, Paul tells us in Ephesians 6.14 that when we're in the midst of spiritual warfare, the way we gird up the loins of our mind, he says, Stand, therefore, having girded up your loins with truth. In other words, in order for us to hope fully in the grace of God, we must continually be girded up with the truth. Thus why, in the armor of God, the belt is the belt of truth. You're girding up your loins with You're preparing the loins of your mind for a battle. For a race. And in doing that, you do that with the truth. You gird up your mind with the truth. That's how you set your hope fully on God. You must continually, I want you to hear this, continually meditate on God's word day and night. And specifically the promise of God's gospel. If you do not If you do not, your hope will not be set fully on the grace of God. Won't. Second, being sober-minded, he says. So not only do we need to do that, prepare our minds, but we need to be sober-minded. To be sober-minded means not to be drunk or intoxicated. And he doesn't mean here drunk with alcohol, although I'm sure that's probably included, right? He's talking about being drunk or intoxicated with the idols of this world. That's what he's talking about. It's talking about not allowing our minds to become dumbed down and overcome by the ignorance and lies of this world. When we allow our minds to be constantly infiltrated by the value system of the world, we will become intoxicated and our hope will not be fully on God's grace. That's why Paul says in verse 2 of chapter 12 of Romans, after he says that we're to in view of God's mercy, offer our bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. Then in verse two, he says what? He says, be transformed. Be transformed by the renewing of your minds. But he says another thing. Do not be conformed to the pattern of this world. Do not be conformed to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your minds. When, when we are intoxicated with the pattern of this world, with the idols of this world, we will not set our hope fully on the grace of God to be revealed to us. We will not see real dynamic growth in holiness and the fleeing of sinful desires until we hope fully in God's grace. We won't even endure suffering well. We will not endure suffering well until we are continuously setting our hope fully on the grace of God. You know what will happen instead? We'll want to stop running and say, what's the use? What's the use? If all my hope is set on is this world and the things I worship, whether that's my family, whether that's my children, my wife, whether that's my job, my success, my reputation, my career, my pleasure, my comfort, my wealth, whatever it is, if that's where my hope is, The moment those idols are smashed, the moment that God graciously comes along and removes that idol from my life, what will happen is I will despair. And when I'm in the midst of that suffering, because I am so earthly minded, at that point, I will be of no heavenly good. Hear that? We have exactly reversed that idea. I hear people all the time say, oh, you're so heavenly minded, you're of no earthly good. Exactly the opposite. You want to be of earthly good? Be heavenly minded. That's what the scriptures tell us. Set your hope fully on the grace of God that's to be revealed to you at the coming of Jesus Christ, at the revelation of Jesus Christ. What did Paul say was his goal in running the Christian race? What did he say his goals? And, and why was Paul, the apostle, so effectively able to flee sinful desires and to grow in holy characteristics like love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and gentleness and goodness and self-control. Why was he able to do that? Because when he was running his race, he said, his eye was on the prize. What was the prize? The crown of righteousness that was going to be his on that day when the Lord appeared. That's where it was. On the grace to be given to him. In other words, Paul knew that he had to run the race well. In order to run the race well, he had to have his hope set fully on the grace of God, and he had to flee, flee everything that distracted him, everything. That's why he says in 1 Corinthians 6 this interesting phrase. He says this, although all things are permissible for me, hear hear that? All things are permissible for me, not all things are beneficial Although all things are permissible for me, I will not be enslaved by any. Whatever enslaved Paul, whatever was a distraction for him, even if those things were morally good for some other people to participate in, he would forsake them. We talk about addictions in our culture, and sadly, even in the Christian church, we talk about addictions and we talk about recovery. We talk about addictions and we talk about recovery. Not biblical language. What we should be talking about is voluntary slavery to sin and forgiveness, redemption. You you hear that? Freedom from slavery to that sin. Because we are a people who are constantly, voluntarily putting ourselves in slavery. We are... Constantly distracted by the things of this world. And you can be in slavery to perfectly good things. Alcohol, according to Scripture, is a blessing. It's a good thing. It's not bad, it's a gift from God. But we voluntarily make ourselves slaves to it. We abuse it, we misuse it, and as a result, we're in sin. And if you're one of the people who cannot deal with alcohol in a manner that other than it being a distraction for you or something you put yourself in voluntary slavery to, then you should avoid alcohol. The same thing's true with food, right? Let's pick on the alcoholics. What, what, what about the people who eat too much, like me, right? I'm going to point at a drunk and say, you drink too much, and then while I'm sitting there at a buffet, right? committing gluttony happily with all my Christian friends talking about people who drink too much, (laughs) right? The hypocrisy of it is absurd. And the fact is, the Scripture is very clear. You can be in voluntary slavery to food. You can be distracted by all sorts of things. You can be in voluntary slavery at the altar of your children or your family time your spouse having a good marriage, or your reputation, or your entertainment. I see Christians all the time, and I sometimes fall into this group, who are in slavery to their own pleasure, and here's how it's expressed. I know it's sinful. I know it dishonors God. I know it speaks all kinds of evil against him, but I'm going to see that movie because it entertains me because I find it to be funny. I know, Paul says in Ephesians 5, there shouldn't even be a hint of sexual immorality or coarse jesting or joking among you. Not even a hint of it. But I'm going to participate in it because I find it funny and it gives me pleasure. And then we point at drug addicts and say, look at them, enslaved to drugs. When we're enslaved, all kinds of sin ourselves. All kinds of stuff we're enslaved to. And Paul says, I will flee everything that would enslave me, even things that are good, particularly things that are sinful. If they will enslave me, I will flee from them. If they will distract me from setting my hope fully on the grace of God, I will run as fast as I can in the other direction, like Joseph out of Potiphar's house. Paul's eye was on the prize, his hope was set fully on the grace of God, and that's what Peter is calling us to. Second, the gospel empowers us not only to set our hope fully on the grace of God, the gospel empowers us to imitate and fear our God and Father while in exile. It empowers us to imitate and fear our God and Father while we're in exile. Look at what Peter says in verse 14. As obedient children, notice how he, how he addresses his church here? How he addresses the believers as obedient children. He doesn't say be obedient children. He says, as obedient children. Do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. We're his children, we're the children of the Father. And as his children, we're not to be conformed to the passions of our former ignorance. We're to imitate our father. Peter said, he who calls you is holy, so be holy also. We are to be holy, be holy in our thinking, in our attitudes, and in our behaviors. Look what he says there. The passions, that's our affections. The ignorance that has to do with our mind, our thinking And then he says, be holy in all your conduct. That has to do with our actions. We're to be holy in our attitude, our thinking, and our behaviors, just as the Father is holy. Think about that. Paul tells us in Ephesians 5, 1 to be imitators of God as beloved children. What's our standard for holiness? The Father is our standard for holiness. Not another Christian in the church. Not other people around you. The Father is our standard for not even the Apostle Paul or Peter who sin, and you read about their sin even in the New Testament. Paul struggling with pride, Peter struggling with man's approval all the time. They're not our standard for holiness. The Father is our standard for holiness. We aren't to be mostly holy. This isn't a princess bride call like mostly dead, be totally, completely holy. If our call, we, we treat our call sometimes though like a, a to holiness, um, a bit like I, I'm gonna I'm gonna get most of the way there or, or part of the way there, and I'm gonna be satisfied with that. We're kind of like soldiers who go into a war. If, if holiness, the battle in the Christian life really is a spiritual war, we're kind of like soldiers who go in the war, and, and they tell that the general says to them. I want you to be safe. Don't get shot at all. And they're like, that's too high a standard. I'm going to get shot occasionally. Right? That's how we enter the spiritual war. That standard of total holiness like the Father is impossible. It's unrealistic. Forget it. I want to be holy, but I kind of like some of that other stuff. But look how Peter says we're to be holy as God is holy. He says that we're not to be conformed um, to our former ignorance, not to be conformed to our former ignorance, our minds that are rejoiced in the truth, our ignorance is our former ignorance. but we 've been enlightened, we know the truth. However, we can be tempted to return to that former ignorance and let our minds return to the stupidity we once lived in. How? Through what we habituate in our minds, what we think about all the time, what we meditate on, what we take in. But Paul gives us a standard in Philippians 4:8 for what our minds are to think on. Ready? Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. I have to ask myself the question when I was studying this week is what I'm watching or reading or listening to or joking about or discussing true, honorable, just, pure, lovely, commendable, excellent, or worthy of praise? Because if it's not, I'm distracted with the world. He also says we're not to be conformed to our former passions, the passions of our former ignorance. Prior to being saved, we were controlled by the passions of our former ignorance. Our affections, our desires, our love, our devotion was given over to sin, wasn't it? We were dead in our trespasses and sins, and we were children of disobedience, according to Ephesians 2.3. But now we're obedient children, led by the Spirit of God, no longer enslaved to sin. And if we're to grow in holiness, we need to meditate on his word and pray for continued help in desiring godliness and not in desiring sin. We will start to fall back into our old lusts and passions. That's one of the reasons why God graciously gave us a church. You know that? He graciously gave us a church so we could gather together. According to Hebrews, he says what? Don't forsake, the author of Hebrews, don't forsake the gathering yourselves together. Why? Because when you gather together, that's where you stir one another up to love and good deeds. That's the point there. You help, you hear that word of passion, stirring one another up? You help build into one another affections, desires that are holy, and that honor God, and behaviors that do the same. Third, we're we're not to be conformed to our former behaviors, he says, not only our our affections or passions, not only our former thinking, but our former behaviors. Obviously, when Peter talks about obedience and conduct, he's including our behavior, we're to put off the behaviors that were sinful, put on behaviors that are godly. We're called to obey. Frankly, obedience obviously encompasses thoughts and attitudes and actions, so let me roll them all together and just say this. We are to obey God's commandments just like Jesus did. And some of you might say, that's legalistic. I'm not saying you should obey God's commandments as some kind of torturous drudgery in which you're doing everything you can to earn his approval. Okay, To earn justification. I'm saying you should obey God's commandments in joy as those whom he already loves while still sinners. Jesus actually says in John 15, 10, 11 if you keep my commandments you'll abide in my love just as I've kept my father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I've spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. But Peter doesn't just say we're to imitate our Father. He says we're to fear Him. We're to fear the displeasure and discipline of our Father. Look with me at verse 17. And if you call on Him as Father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. See, while we're in exile... We're to fear our Father. What does he mean by that? He's not talking about fearing God's wrath, this terrifying fear of God's wrath that unbelievers ought to have. He's talking about fearing the judgment of discipline that comes to, that comes to believers. This is the fear of God believers experience. It's the fear of grieving the Father who loves us so much. It, the life of a holy exile, the kind of fear we have for a father, is the kind of fear my son um, has with me. He wants to imitate his dad. Um, it, it, less and less as he gets older, but I still remember a couple years ago when he wanted to have a big belly, because his dad does, right? As he's gotten older, he's kind of gotten over that one. <laughs> he decided that he wants me to have a smaller belly. But the point is, wants to imitate his dad. He also fears his dad's disapproval. He fears um, not so much that I would reject him, but he worries about losing my smile on his life. You know, parents, what this looks like when your kids are constantly looking at you when they're doing something to see if, if you're smiling at them, Right? They lost their, your, your smile in their lives. I actually have a list of, of 11 commandments of preaching that were written not by me, but by Sinclair Ferguson, a pastor, that I've, I've, I've pasted in the front of my Bible that I read when I'm preparing for preaching and when I'm preaching, right before I preach. And the second commandment says this, preach in the fear of the Lord. Preach in such a way that you fear losing his smile upon your ministry. that. I don't want to lose the Father's smile Upon my ministry, the ground of all, but I want you to understand this, the ground of all this Christian growth in the midst of our exile is the gospel. Look at verse 18 to 21. Because in verse 13 we saw, set your hope fully on the grace of God to be revealed to you, grounds it in the gospel, and the therefore grounds it in the gospel. Now look at 18 to 21, grounds this imitation and fear in the gospel, knowing that you were ransomed. You're to do all this, imitate him, fear him, knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious... Blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for your sake, who through him, through Jesus, are believers in God. God raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. Our God and Father ransomed us from our sin with the precious blood of the lamb. God gave his son to bring about salvation, our holiness. God gave um, our God and Father plan before the foundation of the world to save us in Christ. And he brought about that plan in the fullness of time. He decided to give us faith so that our faith and hope are in God. That's where Peter grounds it. You can fear and imitate your Father. Do that because you know that He saved you, that you're His. The third major way that we're empowered by the gospel and command that comes out of it is the gospel empowers us to have a holy love for others while in exile. Not only does the gospel empower us to set our hope fully on the grace of God to be revealed, not only does the gospel empower us to imitate and have fear, the right kind of fear of our fathers while we're in exile, but the gospel empowers us to have a holy love for others while we're in exile. A holy love for others. Look at verse 22 having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. Since you've been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and abiding word of God. For all flesh is like gla- grass, and its glo- all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass wit- withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And this word is the good news that was preached to you This command to have holy love for others is bracketed by the gospel. If you notice how it starts, he starts out with this statement, having purified your souls by obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love. That's how he starts it. You hear that gospel statement? What does that mean? We obeyed the truth. That's how our souls were purified. We obeyed the truth. What does he mean by obeyed the truth? We repented and believed the gospel command. The gospel command is this, repent and believe that Jesus Christ is Lord you'll be saved. Obedience to that gospel truth is this, repenting and believing. When you believe in Christ as your hope, and you turn from your sin and self-righteousness and turn to him as your righteousness, you have repented and believed. You've obeyed the truth, and you are purified of your sin. You are cleansed you were forgiven. And that's how he starts it out. Having done this, now do this. And what's interesting is that he goes on and says, not only have you been cleansed or purified or declared holy, you've been given a new life. And what he, look what he says. You've not only been pure, had your souls purified by your obedience to the truth, but for, for a sincere brotherly love. In other words, there's a new life that's also come when you believed. And that new life issues... Issues in a love for God and for others. Peter can't conceive of a Christian who's not been transformed by the gospel. He can't even conceive of it because that person is no Christian at all. So he commands us to love one another earnestly from a pure heart. Look how he says that. We're to love, have a love for others that's sincere. Hear that? A sincere brotherly love. What's that mean? It's not put on. It's not an air I put on for you. It's not glad-handing you. You guys ever met people who glad-hand you all the time? Maybe some of you are glad-handers. You basically act like, you know, we're buddies. I had a guy who told me that he was going to, you know, take me to lunch next time he comes through Bakersfield, basically, who I know won't even remember who I am one minute after the conversation. That was very nice of him but he was basically just putting something on for me. And and people do that, right? That's not what kind of love he's talking about. He's talking about sincere love. The kind of love that isn't just put on, that doesn't go away when the attention's off you, but that endures. He also says it's a kind of love that's earnest. In other words, it's a zealous love. It's a deep love. And that it's a love that's From a pure heart. It's holy love. It's unmixed with sin. This is the kind of love that will cause you great discomfort. Why? Because it's going to require you to do several things. You know what the kind of love he's talking about here that you have for one another, for the believers? is the kind of love that requires you to be constantly putting idols to death. Constantly. If I have an idol with my family, with my time, and someone else, one of my brothers is in need. I'm having to put that idol to death. If I have an idol with my money, I'm have to put that money idol to death to help out my brother who's in need. It requires me to constantly seek reconciliation with brothers and sisters in Christ. It requires you to put your own agenda aside. This is the kind of love that will require you to give up your own wealth for others. It will require you to give up your time and emotional energy for the sake of others. It's a holy love. It's a kind of love that exiles who live in this world are supposed to have. It's a kind of love that extends to enemies and prays for those who persecute us. It's a kind of love that's always seeking the good of others and not their harm. Always seek. Do you know what gossip is? It's hate. It's hatred. You know, gossip and slander, if you go back to the Greek, it's, it's the word um, that we get diabolical from, satanic, of the devil. In other words, when you gossip or slander people, when you're not seeking their good but their harm, do you know that in the scripture that's called devil speak? It's not holy love. Kind of love that seeks one another's good, not their harm. I saw this kind of brotherly love in Pastor Jason as he poured himself out for me and for this church, which he did for some time over this last year. I saw this kind of love from many in our church. I have seen it from our elders, I've seen it from people who serve with our children's ministry, I've seen it for small group leaders. Why? Because these people are taking away from their time and deciding to pour into other people for their good and their benefit. I've seen it um, for others who are constantly pouring themselves out for the sake of the church. I've seen it for many of you as you care for one another in ways that have nothing to do with formal ministries in this church. It's what holy love looks like. It's the gospel empowers us to love one another that way. It's what we're called to. I'm ask yourself the question: What 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 do I have to add to the children's ministry? Or what do I have? What what good does it do me to serve in the nursery? Or what good does it do me to set up or tear it? What good does it do me? To, I'll tell you what good: it serves other people. It does good to them. That's the holy love we're called to. We're not called to find a sort of gift, you know, that we have that we are just sort of in idolatry over where we get to express it so much so that what matters to us really is the expression of this gift that we feel we have that's what becomes important that i get to express my gift all the time no what matters is whether i have that gift or i don't have that gift i'm going to give up my life for other people and the sake of christ because it honors him Even if I'm not specifically getting anything out of it at the time. Even if it's just emotionally exhausting me. I'm going to do it because I have died. I've been crucified with Christ and yet I live. But not I, but Christ who lives within me. We need to give up everything for one another in the cause of Christ. I thank God that I see so many of you doing it. And I pray, as Paul did with the Thessalonians in chapter 4, that we would excel still more. Excel still more in love for one another. But what, what gets in the way of this kind of holy love is idols. So how do you build this holy love? You identify the idols in your life and you slay them. You mortify them. You turn to Christ and you love him more call out to him to give you the strength to do it, and he will. He will. Why should you do any of it, though? What motivates you? What empowers you? Look at verse 23 through 25. Again, he grounds it in the gospel. You're supposed to love each other earnestly from a pure heart. Why? Since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding Word of God. For all flesh is like grass and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the Word of the Lord remains forever. And this Word is the good news, the gospel that was preached to you. That's why we do it. That's why we do it. That's what empowers us. That's what motivates us. We are a gospel-driven people. We are a gospel-motivated people. We are a gospel-saved people, a gospel-empowered people, and that's how we live. And the gospel is Jesus Christ, the one who lived perfectly in our place, the one who paid our penalty on the cross, the one who conquered the grave, who raised from the dead so that we might be forgiven, so that we might be declared righteous, so that we might have new life in the Spirit, so that we might be adopted as children of the Father so that we might suffer as exiles in this time here and now, and eventually we might have given to us the great inherent inheritance that is him upon his glorious return. Let me pray. Lord, we ask that you would help us to be people who love your word and its truth and who pursue holiness, knowing that it is your gospel that empowers us to this end. You are you have been truly gracious to us. We don't deserve anything you've done, yet you have done it all because of your great love and mercy. And Father, we pray that we would be children who set our hope fully on the grace to be revealed to us in Jesus Christ, that we would be heavenly-minded people. Father, we pray that we'd be people who see ourselves as children of you, who imitate you, who desire to be like you, who fear you, who Fear losing your smile on our lives. That we would be the kind of children who have deep, affectionate, sincere, unyielding, brotherly love for one another. Father, that we would be people who recognize that this is all to be motivated by the gospel, by your goodness to us, that it's all empowered by the gospel, and that we would rejoice and God our Savior, and that you would return soon so that our hope, our hope would be realized and we would see you in all your glory. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.